We come this morning to our last message in 1 Samuel. We've had 23 weeks in this book, um, in a series that we've titled No Rock Like Our God. And I personally have been encouraged to hear a number of you share how this series, and in particular sermons, have encouraged you, have reminded you about the character of God, the covenant of God, his goodness, how you've been touched or comforted, or maybe even convicted, confronted by God's word. Uh, but in particular, being reminded that the Lord himself is our salvation. We need to hear that every day, but today we need to be hearing that. Just to let you know where we are heading next, um, the season of Advent begins next week, on the last uh, Sunday of November, and uh, we begin a series through Matthew's Gospel that we'll take into next year. We're not going to do all of Matthew's Gospel in one long run like we have with one semi. We're going to break it up, but we're going to start with Advent looking at the birth narratives of Jesus. Um, and as I said, we'll do that in a few chunks through 2023. But first, we're going to finish with 1 Samuel. Have you ever had reason to wait, had an opportunity in your life where you know something's coming up and there's expectation, there's patient waiting, um, and it, the big day comes and it's something significant that you're waiting for. And then when the day comes, it's all a bit of a fizzer. You sort of let down. Nat left us hanging a couple of weeks ago with David on the brink of the battlefield with the Philistines. Is he going to fight with them, for them, or against them? Only to have the story interrupted as we had this uh, little uh, event with Saul going to the, the medium at Endor. Back to David last week, who was relieved from his sticky situation, remember, and then only to find his whole family and his whole town had been raided by the Amalekites. And now finally we get to this big climax, this cliffhanger that we've been waiting on, and it's sort of over before you even get there, isn't it? Like within a couple of verses, Saul's dead and the war's over. And both my wife and daughter said to me as they heard that reading, they said, well, that was nice, wasn't it? <laughs> we thought Halloween was bad. It's pretty gruesome sort of reading, isn't it? Saul was reminded last week through the medium at Endor, Samuel speaking to Saul, that his life was going to finish, his throne would come to an end the very next day and this reading is that next day we finally get to it but if we're honest it's more like a whitewash than a war everything we've been waiting for to find out what's going to happen it's over as i said in a couple of verses the philistines were fighting verse one against israel the men of israel fled before them and they fell slain at mount Gil gilboa the philistines overtook saul and his sons and the philistines struck down jonathan and Benadab and malkishua the sons of saul the battle pressed hard against Saul. The archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. They don't seem to stand much of a chance at all, Israel. They're flattened even by the end of verse 1. But that is what the Lord told Samuel after all, isn't it? Israel are going to fall into the hands of the Philistines, and you and your sons will die together tomorrow. This chapter is actually the fulfilment of that word that the Lord had told Samuel. Sorry, told Samuel and told Saul through Samuel. God's word never fails, does it? And it's common practice in a battle like this to try to identify and pick out the king or the commander of the army, knock out the leader, and the rest of them are going to scatter. They've got no one to lead them. And that's exactly what happens here. The Philistine archers had done their job well, picking Saul out from among the troops, taking aim for him, and he's badly wounded. Having a crown on his head and depicting himself as the king is probably no help. We read that in chapter in the in Second Samuel. He's actually found in the battlefield with a crown. 
probably good to be identified by his own men, not so good by his enemies, to know who the king is. And once the rest of Saul's army see and hear that their king has fallen, they abandon not just the battlefield, they're slain on the battlefield, and everyone in the cities, they flee as well, and the Philistines take over and occupy their hometowns. And it's not just, this story is not just about Saul and this battle. The whole history of Israel, the future of Israel, is under serious threat right here. Philistines have taken over. Things are looking pretty dire for Israel. But the nature of Saul's death is worth considering for a moment, as gruesome as it might be. He's been wounded by the archers badly, but not mortally but bad enough that he knew he couldn't get off the battlefield and get any first aid. He couldn't bind his wounds or seek refuge. The battle pressed hard against Saul. The archers had found him. He was badly wounded by the archers. And so in fear, Saul takes action against himself. He said to his armour bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it. Why? Lest these uncircumcised, the Philistines, come and thrust me through and mistreat me. Saul's life from beginning to end, as far as we hear of him, seems to be filled with fear, doesn't it? From the moment uh, he's called by his father to go look for the donkeys, he's worried about when should we go back, lest my father is worried and concerned that he's lost us, not just the donkeys. Then at his own coronation, he's seen hiding in the baggage. He doesn't, he's afraid of being seen among the people, this big, strong, handsome, tallest man in all Israel. He takes desperate and drastic action on the battlefield when he sees his own men running away scared, afraid he's going to lose them all. And when Samuel confronts him, he says, won't you come back down the hill with me? Lest they see that I'm not approved of the Lord. He doesn't want to be seen as not approved by Samuel and the Lord among the people. He wants to be honoured. He's afraid that he'll be dishonoured. And even here on the battlefield, that's what he's afraid of. It seems to me that Saul is almost always acting out of fear rather than acting out of faith. And I don't think he's alone in that. I think a lot of us wrestle with that a lot of the time, don't we? Not many of us could say we've always had the confidence and courage and faith to stand firm in times of trial, to say, I will weather this storm, whatever else, because I know God is with me. I'm sure we've all faltered, stumbled, and maybe fallen along the way. I'm sure many of us have taken decisions, actions out of fear rather than faith. Which, if we're honest and examine ourselves closely, can actually often be a sign of unbelief. And I say that gently, but also truthfully. It can sometimes be a sign of disobedience to God's word that tells us don't be afraid, don't be anxious about anything. Now when you're feeling anxious and fearful to hear those words, it just feels like a kick in the guts, doesn't it? What you want is compassion and help and not just to be told don't be afraid. This story of Saul and his life and death, he's, he's afraid of man's approval more than he is of God's approval. We battle with that, don't we? He's afraid of consequences, of losing. We're afraid of that too. He's afraid of suffering. We're afraid of that too, aren't we? 
And the story of Saul in his life and his death here, I think, can teach us that even though in our fears we might try to avoid the big decisions, we can renege on our responsibilities and we can run away in fear or not. And at times it can seem like the easier way, can't it? But I think it's what we hear and learn here from Saul is in the end it only leads to trouble. It reminds me of young Christian, the pilgrim, in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. One point in that story, he stands at the hill of what's called Mount the Hill Difficulty. He's entered by the narrow gate. Now he stands at the base of this hill called Difficulty. And this is how the story goes. I beheld then that they, Pilgrim and a few companions, all went on until they came to the foot of Hill Difficulty, at the bottom of which was a spring. Here there were two other ways besides the path that came straight from the narrow gate, one turned to the left hand, the other to the right. However, narrow, however, the narrow way went straight up the hill, difficulty. Christian now went to the spring and drank to refresh himself and then began to go up the hill, saying, The hill, though high, I choose to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend, for I perceive the way to life lies here. Come, take heart. Let's neither faint nor fear. Better, though difficult, the right way to go than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. Come, take heart. Let's neither faint nor fear. There's two other men with Pilgrim, with Christian. They also came to the foot of the hill when they saw that the hill was very steep and very high and that there were two other easier ways to go. And supposing that these two ways met on the, again on the other side of the hill in the same direction, they resolved to go on these easy paths. Now the name of one of those ways was danger and the name of the other was destruction. So one took the way called danger which led him into an enormous bewildering forest. The other took the way to destruction which led him into a wide field full of dark pits where he stumbled and fell and rose no more. And a little further on, when Christian reached the top of the hill, he's got there, two men came running to meet him. The name of one was Timorous. He's shy and timid. The other was Mistrust. Christian inquired of them, Sir, what is the matter? You're running the wrong way. Timorous answered, we were going to the celestial city. It's the great goal they're all working towards. But the further we go, the more dangers we meet with. Therefore, we have turned around and we're going back. Yes, said Mistrust, for there were lions just ahead of us on the path and we didn't know if they were asleep or awake. We were terrified they would tear us to pieces. And then Christian said, you frightened me. But where shall I flee to be safe? If I go back to my own country, which shall be destroyed by fire and brimstone, I will certainly perish there. I shall only be safe if I can reach the celestial city. I must venture onward. To go back is nothing but death. To go forward is fear of death and everlasting life beyond it. I must surely go forward. So mistrust and timorous, they ran down the hill and Christian continued on the difficult way.
been tempted to turn back and run or to stand firm take heart and not faint with fear living in fear and not in faith might seem the easier way to go because we avoid all the, the fearful things but in the end it's not is it it's not the easier path it can be joyless it can be exhausting and here at least for Saul as it does in Pilgrim's Progress ends in nothing but death tragic sad and shame-filled death this whole chapter is filled with death isn't it there's 15 references to bloodshed death being slain in just 13 verses But the path of faith is not the easiest way either, is it? And we actually make a liar out of God if we peddle the gospel, if we promote the gospel to people and don't tell them actually that there's a cost, like a daily carrying the cross sort of cost. It's a narrow path. But it's the only one that leads to eternal life, to glory, to the safe refuge. The only path. The gate is narrow, the way is hard that leads to life, Jesus says, and those who find it are few. Had a text this morning for our prayers later on, one of our folk in their struggles, feeling their faith failing. Warning prayer. And I think even as that faith fails, that faith is strong as they ask for prayer, knowing that it comes from God. I know another one who's been going through a hard time and just about turned their back on God altogether because he hasn't come through with what he wants for life. Enter by that narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter it are many. We today need to be reminded that being a disciple of Jesus, being a Christian, involves taking up our cross in lots of ways. Yes, bearing persecution, opposition, shame from the world, but also in the groaning, the pangs of childbirth that this whole creation is groaning with, the sufferings that we all endure. Sharing in the sufferings of Christ is actually the way to glory. Escaping those sufferings is not the way to glory. Being taken through them is. The very essence of our Christian life is actually death. Let me continue though. Death to self. But it's life in Christ, isn't it? It's a life lived in faith, lived to God and for God and not for ourselves. Saul didn't want to take the narrow gate. He never has definitely didn't take the narrow path along the way which lies beyond the gate he rarely listened to the word of god he often went his own way out of his own fear and unbelief and now even in death it's fear that dictates his actions isn't it it seems he's less afraid of dying than he is of what the philistines are going to do to his body afterwards he's more afraid of those who can destroy the body than he is of the one who can destroy both body and soul. 
and he's right to fear. They do mistreat his body. He's right with what he anticipates is going to happen. But he doesn't turn to the Lord in it. His worst fears have become a reality. And even though his fear is warranted, it happens. As often in life it does. Our greatest fears sometimes do come to fruition, don't they? But letting that fear rule our hearts and minds is a different thing altogether. I've wrestled with this week, probably more than this week really, most of my life. Is it sinful to be afraid? Because so often we're told not to be afraid. Is it sinful to worry? And in and of itself, I don't think it is. But to feel that fear and that worry and then let that fear and worry dictate and determine our next, our next action, our next decision, that's where we start distrusting God. Rather than, as we're told in the New Testament, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts, as in govern your hearts and minds. The peace that guards our hearts and minds, trusting that it does. So being afraid, that's okay. Having worries, Paul, Paul, the one who says don't be anxious about anything, says I've got the, the, the concerns for the church constantly at him. And yet what does he do with them? He casts them upon the Lord. He doesn't let that fear and that anxiety dictate his life and rule his life. As Saul, I think, does here. I think fear sometimes can be sheer disobedience, not trusting God, refusing to trust him. Sometimes it can be a weakness in our faith. It can expose our fear of man more than it is of God. Our fear of suffering, all those things are very real. Maybe we're not sure. Yes, we say God is good and we know he is God, but I'm not sure how good he is because this doesn't feel very good at the moment. And I wonder sometimes at a minimum, and I say this without judgment because I need to hear it myself, I wonder if our fears and letting those things rule our lives actually shows that we don't know fully the love of Christ. The perfect love of God, we're told, that casts out fear. I don't say that as judgment. I say that with a, a shepherd's heart. And I think Paul feels the same when he writes, you know, he prays for the Ephesians, doesn't he? That their eyes would be opened, that they would know the unknowable love of God. The height, the depth, the length and breadth that surpasses knowledge. We can't just know it. We need God to show us it, to reveal it to us and to give us that faith and that insight. To know his love in that way. If we are in Christ, brothers and sisters, if we are in Christ, you have been perfected in love. You have been perfected in love. And there is now no condemnation. You've been set free from the wrath of God. And so we can pray with Paul that God would open our eyes and show us that love of Christ so that we might not fear, might not let that fear rule our hearts and our lives. As I think it does here for Saul. And if you wrestle with that as I do, and I have, and I know we do, each of us in varying degrees at varying times, then pray like Paul does. Open up Ephesians and read his prayers and pray those prayers. Or the very simple prayer of the man who said to Jesus, whose child was suffering, I believe. Help my unbelief. 
such a simple prayer. But what's packed into that is, yes, I believe, and Lord, I need help to believe. And even the faith I've got, I know, comes from you. And the faith I need, I need from you because I can't rev myself up to get it. None of us can, can we? It's a gift from God, our faith. Even Abraham, convinced as he was, nothing made him unwaver. Nothing made him waver concerning the promises of God. Fully convinced. And yet we're told in Romans, he grew strong in his faith as he trusted God. God was showing him and teaching him and growing him all the way and strengthening his faith. Nothing wrong with praying, Lord, I believe, but I need some help with my faith at the moment. And we need to pray that for one another, those that are feeling their faith failing. Sadly, I don't think Saul ever prayed that prayer. I hope that's not the case for us here. We're told back in chapter 28 when Saul was reminded his life, or told his life was going to end this day, he was filled with fear and there was no strength in him. Where do you go when that happens to you? Saul didn't pray at that time, we're not told. He didn't cry out to the Lord for mercy. He didn't bow in repentance. He froze in fear as he learned the outcome of his unbelief, his rebellion against God, he's told. And as that word comes to fruition here on the battlefield, still his greater fear is not that of God, but of man. He's more afraid of what the Philistines are going to do to his body than he is of meeting his maker. Even on the brink of death, it seems for Saul, there is still no fear of the Lord in him. I don't think we can say that with 100% conviction, but that's how it seems. And he ends up taking his own life, falling on his own sword, because his armour bearer wouldn't do it for him. But even that didn't protect him from the Philistines and how they mistreated his body. I don't know if you noticed, Jonathan is there on the battlefield with his father. He's the first one mentioned to have died on the battlefield. One of the real heroes, really, in this whole story of Samuel. A loyal and beloved friend to David and a faithful son at the same time to his father. Right to the end, dying on the battlefield next to his father. Even though he knew his father's kingdom was coming to an end, even though he knew David would be the next king and he longed, even promised David at one point, I will be with you alongside you when you are throned as king. But he's not. The hero dies here. Heroes do die in battles, don't they? Maybe not in the movies, but they do in real life. They're not invincible. Even faithful friends and covenant partners die. And often in ways and times that we wouldn't want or expect. Fathers, sons, mothers, daughters. Death is a part of life. But we need not fear it. Not in Christ. Those who know Christ and keep his word, we're told they will not see death. And when those who live see others die that we know are in the Lord, we need not grieve 
without hope. Yes, there's a loss, there's a sadness, there's a grief that's real and it's right. But we need not grieve without hope. But one thing that has struck me as I've read this chapter and finish, as we finish 1 Samuel, and it's actually convicted my own heart, is actually how Saul is honoured here in the very end. How he's treated with respect, particularly by those at Jabesh Gilead. You might remember way back, I think it was chapter 11, Saul, that was one of Saul's first battles where he actually raised up an army. And remember King Nahash, he said to the people at Jabesh Gilead, even if you make a, a covenant with me, I'm still going to come and gouge out the eyes of all your fighting men. That's what Saul saved them from. They've remembered that. And so they've remembered Saul in his death and they come and they honour him and pull his body down from the, the gates and take his head and give him a burial, right and fitting for a king. A whole week of fasting for his sake. They didn't forget what Saul had done for them. They honoured him. And I say that that act of respect for Saul has actually confronted and convicted my own heart is because as we've read through this, I think rightly so, we've seen how Saul's acted, his life, his character, and we've considered that and we've learned from it. But I wonder, have we actually honoured Saul as the Lord's anointed? Because that's what he is. Even David did, didn't he? It's been good and right to examine him in these pages, in these stories. But he was the Lord's anointed. Even David has shown us how Saul was to be treated with honour and respect, even when he was intent on putting David to death. Saul was to be honoured, maybe not because of his own character, but simply because he's a man made in the image of God and he's a man appointed by God as king of God's people. Our own culture, our own nation, we've lost a lot of our respect for our leaders, haven't we? Both personally and collectively. Those who have the courage to step up and actually take a lead, how quickly we tear them down the minute they do something a little bit wrong or that we don't agree with. Whether it's school captains or prime ministers or anything in between, we demand so much from our leaders, but we gave them so little slack, so little forgiveness. Yes, leaders are to be judged more strictly. They're called to account in a whole different measure. But they're still people appointed by God for their roles and we should honour and respect them as that. doesn't mean we can't discuss things, doesn't mean we can't disagree with them, but we are to honour them. Yes, there's added responsibility for those in leadership, but there's also a special responsibility for us, anyone under their leadership, to submit to them. God tells us to do that. To pray for them. He tells us to do that. And did you know in the church, the writer of Hebrews calls for church members not just to obey their leaders and submit to them because they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give account, but he says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Part of the church's responsibility, I got a 
the Bible College every now and then, or I look up on the Baptist website, and there's um, we get the email every couple of weeks, and you hear about the jobs for pastors, and you look up, look them up, and they're almost looking for Jesus and Superman rolled into one. The job responsibilities for a pastor. But did you know every congregational member has a job specification as well? Pray, submit, honour. And one of those aspects, one of that part of that job description is to see to it that I do my job with joy and not with groaning. Did you know that? Let them do it with joy and not with groaning. Because we keep watch over your souls. As in we have to give account for your souls. To which when I shared that with Nat, he said, I don't know if that's a very good deal. (laughs) But there is a bit of selfish motive in it for you. Because in not letting us groan too much in our labours, that would be of no advantage to the church. I can't speak for John or Nat, but I would hope at a minimum if I die as your pastor and don't let my body be hung up on a wall or decapitated, you can bury me under a gum tree somewhere if you like. But there is an honour to be given to our leaders both in life and in death, isn't there? Because what's really at stake here and what really matters, particularly with our Christian leaders, is the honour of God, not the honour of the person. The defeat of Israel here is one thing, it's a very sad thing. The defeat of Saul is another But what it all points to as far as the Philistines are concerned and the nations is they've just seen Yahweh, the Lord, defeated, come to nothing. Israel's king has been killed. Their army has just fled or been slain. And most of their territory has just been taken over. Israel's a loser as far as the Philistines are concerned. Yahweh's weak. He's dead. He's defeated. Barely a toddler, as a nation goes, Israel here, are in utter ruins. And their future, well, who knows? But we do know. We know that God hasn't lost. We know that Israel is actually far from ruined. Not just because we know what happens next. We know David's still alive. God's anointed is still there and he's going to rise up and be enthroned as king. But we also know God himself is truly Lord of all. He's still sovereign. And the Philistines are going to learn that soon enough. Our Lord is a God, as Hannah reminds us at the very beginning of Samuel, who raises up the poor from the dust, who lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes. That's our hope, the hope of glory, Christ in you. that we would inherit a seat of honour. You see, ours is a theology not of glory, but a theology of the cross. What looks to be weakness and foolishness and death, things that the world fears, are in fact power and wisdom and life in Christ. Because our God humbles himself, doesn't he, even to death on a cross, and to look foolish and weak and dead in order that he might be exalted and raise us to life with him that he might be praised above all names and be seated far above every rule and power and authority 
That's our hope. That's the firm foundation upon which we stand. What looks to be death is life. What looks to be weakness is strength and power. What looks to be foolishness is wisdom. That's the way of our Lord. That's the way of our salvation. That's the way of his kingdom. And it's to be the way of his people. We who have been transferred from the dominion of darkness, that kingdom, into a kingdom of love in his son. We too have been crucified. with. We've been put to death on the battlefield with Christ. But we've been raised up with him so that we might live now no longer for ourselves, but to him. Our lives are now hid with God in Christ so that in dying to ourselves, in walking that narrow path up Mount Difficult, there's life. In losing our lives for Christ and in Christ, we actually gain life. We don't lose anything. I want to finish today and finish our series we're not going to go into 2nd Samuel but I want to read from 2nd Samuel because as in Saul's life so in his death David honours the Lord's anointed to the very end after hearing of his death uh, another man comes and he claims (laughs) Saul's dead and I think he's there with his own ulterior motive and David deals quite swiftly with him but David laments over Saul's death this one who tried to pin him to the wall more than once David laments over Saul and what he writes is quite remarkable I think but it shouldn't surprise us because here is a man remember who is after God's own heart should be the way of all of us made in the image of God and called to be his children that we love our enemies and pray for them let me read David's lament David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not to Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offspring. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished.
That's where we're going to leave David for the time being. As he inquires of the Lord and waits still a little longer yet before he's officially crowned King of Israel. And we'll head into our Advent series. But for now, let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. This word that's been written and kept through the ages and is living and active to speak to us today. We praise you for your mighty works, how you raise up the poor and bring low the exalted. Father, we thank you for your sovereign grace and your faithfulness that we have seen these weeks through the history of your old covenant people, Israel. We thank you for Hannah, Elkanah, for Samuel, for Eli, for Saul, Jonathan and David, for the priests and the people of the city of Nob, for Michal and Abigail, Abiathar and many others, through whom you have taught us, convicted us, and comforted us as your new covenant people in Christ Jesus today, who lived and died for us that we might live for you. You, our Lord, are our rock. There's none like you. You are our salvation. We rejoice in your salvation. We bless you for your sovereign grace and faithfulness to us in your dear Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.